All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's page 992 in a blue pew Bible. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to follow along there. And uh, we got to go fast today, all right? So be prepared to listen fast today. Um, I want to start this way by, by sharing the observation that I have yet to meet the believer in Jesus Christ who thinks they are over-encouraged in their Christian life. I have not yet heard someone say, you know, I'm struggling with getting too much encouragement. I don't know what to do with it all. The Christian life is too easy. I could use some more challenges in my life. I could use some more struggles, some more doubts in my faith to kind of even things out. Um, And on the contrary, as you imagine and feel yourselves, the, the vast majority, if not all believers, have times in their life some of us, entire stretches of our lives where we are what we'll call malcouraged. Malcouraged. You've heard of malnourished. To be malnourished is to not be properly energized and fed and physically equipped to carry out uh, your everyday life. In the same way, to be malcouraged is to not be properly energized and confident and courageous and carry out the everyday lives that God is calling you to live. That you're struggling with being malcouraged. Um, in John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, written in 1678, the second most read book, aside from the Bible, in the history of the world, tells the allegorical story of a believing pilgrim's journey from, what, from the city of destruction, through various trials and encountering various characters, to the celestial city where a good king reigns forever. And at one point in Bunyan's story, the main character named Christian saw that the path ahead of him was becoming rocky. It was getting steep with trials, and he didn't want any of that. So he turned back, and he found a meadow to lie down and fall asleep in. Well, the next morning, a character called the Giant Despair walked by and saw Christian sleeping in the meadow. And so he grabbed him and brought him into the dungeon of Doubting Castle. And there, Christian would be beaten every day and left to suffer. And each day, giant despair would walk in and tell him he will never escape and beat him again. This is what despair, this is what prolonged discouragement can do to the believer in their life. Beat them down. Tell them you will never get out of this. Drain us of hope. There's a lot of reasons why believers can feel discouraged in this life. Perhaps it's a battle with a very specific sin that we feel powerless to overcome, and we feel like we've tried everything to overcome it, and we can't. A physical or mental illness that is all-consuming in us or in the life of a loved one. Relational strife with people in our lives. Maybe just a lack of support. You just have a lack of support in doing the things that God's calling you to do. Well, this morning's passage in 1 Timothy, it's the last passage of chapter 4, This is a passage for the malcouraged, for those who feel like they've been scooped up by the giant of despair. This is for the nights when everything's quiet, and we ask ourselves, almost afraid to say it out loud, what am I doing here? I'm not supposed to be here. For the questions like, is it always going to be this way? Well, in the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian prayed in the midst of his despair while in the dungeon, and suddenly one night he remembered. 
And this is a quote from Pilgrim's Progress. He says, What a fool I am, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I, when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom. 1678, okay? I have a key in my bosom called promise. That I will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And he gets up and he tries the key in the dungeon door. And it opened. And he keeps walking and he gets to the castle door. And it opened. And so he escaped Doubting Castle by using the key of promise. And at this point, Bunyan included a footnote at the bottom of the page. Bunyan wrote this, quote, The promises of God in Christ are the life of faith and the quickeners of prayer. Oh, how oft do we neglect God's great and precious promises in Christ Jesus, while doubts and despair keep us prisoners. This morning, we grab hold of the key of promise and see which doors will open for us. 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 to 16. Paul writes, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, as we've been preaching through this letter, um, up to this point, Paul has been exhorting young Timothy on how he is to carry out ministry in Ephesus where he has been sent. And he was sent to address some of the major issues happening in the church there. And we've seen it, exhortation after exhortation, guiding Timothy on how to lead. But now Paul pauses, and I think with the Spirit upon him, and the Spirit impressing upon him, he pauses to give encouragement to Timothy. Paul knows this is a lot to ask of Timothy. Most commentators believe that uh, Timothy first met Paul when he was a teenager. And if that timeline checks out for when we think 1 Timothy was written, that would put Timothy in somewhere his early to mid-30s now. And we know from other passages in this book and in other books of the Bible that Timothy was prone to discouragement. Not only being relatively young, but he's, uh, the signs throughout Scripture is that he's not necessarily a confident person. He's prone to being timid, fearful, and, and passive. So before we see the outline of what this passage says to discouraged believers, to malcouraged believers, here's a couple things for us to note, and this is outside the outline, but starting with number one. Um, I don't know about you, but I find a strange comfort in the fact that Timothy is not a strong, confident person. Because as I said at the top, no Christians are over-encouraged. And following Christ and carrying out our calling is hard to do. It's just hard to do for an endless amount of reasons. At the end of last week's sermon, which was the end of last passage, um, I asked Grace Church, what does your go look like? You've all been sent. What does your go look like to make known the name of Christ to all people? And we will face discouragement surrounding whatever that answer might be. Perhaps you come out of last week and you say, I know what my go looks like. And I'm doing it, but I'm not seeing any fruit. It's not leading anywhere. That's discouraging. Perhaps you say, I know what my go looks like, but 
um, I, I, I'm so consumed by what I have to do in this world. Like, I got to live my life. I got to work. I have family. I got all these things I have to do. I don't have time to do my go, and I don't understand how anybody else does. That's discouraging. Or maybe you're saying, I don't know what my go looks like. I don't really have the time or ability to carry it out, or I don't think I have the gifting to do what I think God is calling me to do. All those things can be discouraging. And so I think all believers relate to discouragement in the Christian life and therefore can benefit from this passage, and I hope you will. But in the context here, Paul is also specifically talking to those in ministry. Those engaged in what we would call vocational ministry are not absolved from discouragement. They are not the super-Christians who don't get discouraged. In fact, it's nearly the opposite. Those in ministry are often more prone to discouragement. I remember this story that my dad would often share of the man who slept in one Sunday morning and refused to get up for church. And his wife insisted that he get up and start getting ready. And he said to her, I don't want to go. No one likes me there. It's too long, and the sermons are boring. So give me three reasons why I should go. His wife said, first, it's Sunday, and God tells us to. Second, the Lord is good to us in all seasons. And third, you're the pastor. And as with every joke, there's always a hint of truth behind it. Those in ministry are not safe from being malcouraged. Uh, consider this. The research group Barna released a report last spring, spring 2022, that 42% of pastors have considered quitting full-time ministry within the previous 12 months. And that's a number that they track often, and the reason why it was picked up, and the New York Times picked it up, and the Washington Times picked it up and wrote about it, is that that is by far the highest that percentage has ever been since they started. And while not every reason to leave full-time ministry is, is quote-unquote, a negative reason, they often are. And the top reasons cited in this um, survey included the stress of the job, loneliness and isolation, political division and the negative impact it's having on their family. That poll is just for pastors, but I imagine you can extend similar percentages to the other vocational ministry positions in the local church. That's almost one in two. And on the morning that we're commissioning a new family to enter cross-cultural missions, this is a little bit of an older study, but in 2019, a survey of 40,000 missionaries across 600 agencies found that 43% Notice that number, almost identical. 43% of missionaries do not fulfill their long-term commitment to the field. It's hard. It's easy to be malcouraged. Which leads to a second point before we get to the outline. I do have the conviction that at this point in the letter, Paul is writing down, sitting down, he's writing a letter to a man in a city far away. And I think the Spirit impressed upon him, Paul, stop. And say something to him. Stop exhorting him right now. You'll get back to that. Encourage this man. So let it be an encouragement to us that in your lives, when God puts someone on your heart, don't neglect it. We have so many more opportunities to give courage to others. To check on each other. Send a note. Get together. My hope is, one of my hopes for this church in that 
Sunday through Saturday, that outside the weekly gathering, that all over the place, hundreds of messages are flying around this congregation. Hundreds of messages each week, texts, check-ins, calls, coffees, just checking in, encouraging me, and giving encouraged. You can look around and know now that nobody in this room is over-encouraged. It's one of our hopes for this church. All right, well, let's go now. The question remains for us. How does Paul encourage Timothy? You can't encourage someone just by telling them, hey, don't be discouraged. Just don't be discouraged. It's not helpful. Here's how Paul outlines it for us, and I think we should take note. This is not on the screen, but if you want to write this down, I think it's important. You can encourage someone by reminding them of God's promises over them and affirming the godliness you see in them. You can encourage someone by reminding them of God's promises over them and affirming the godliness that is in them. So let's go through those quickly. Number one, Paul affirms godly conduct. Do you remember last week he told Timothy, train yourself for godliness, and now he's talking about some of the godliness he sees in Timothy, starting with number one, godly conduct. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. It's not hard to imagine that the leaders in Ephesus, not big fans of Timothy. He's coming in with the authority of Paul to call them out, and in some cases, call them and remove them out. So not only call out some of the weaknesses in their leadership, but in some ways drive them out of the church. But the picture, again, we have of Timothy is not the strong, confident, seasoned leader that is sent in to shake things up. He doesn't fit the bill of someone that you would think is called to do what he is doing. Uh, there was a television show, I'm not sure if it's still running new episodes, but it was called Bar Rescue. I remember Rochelle and I watched a couple episodes here and there about a decade ago when we were able to watch TV. <laughs> and the show revolves around a bar and restaurant consultant named John Taffer. This is the show's description. Quote, with 40 years experience and a tough, no excuses attitude, John Taffer travels the country helping struggling bar and restaurant owners save their business. And then Taffer is a big, imposing guy, slick back hair, booming voice, and he comes in and he dominates these restaurant owners, tells them what they need to hear, which staff they need to fire, makes sweeping changes, save their business. Timothy was no John Taffer. There's no spin-off show called Church Rescue in his future. He's young, he's timid, Struggles with confidence, easily discouraged. And yet, here's the key, God called him, so Paul sent him. You see it? God called him, so Paul sent him to do a mighty work with an eternal impact. And so brothers and sisters, be careful of thinking that you're not the, quote, kind of person God would use to make an impact. That you don't have the kind of makeup or personality. Be careful with those thoughts. It might just turn out that you are just the kind of person that he would send. But this is so key. Paul doesn't say, set an example by dominating the room. Timothy, you got to set the tone on day one. You don't uh, gain authority by demanding it, but by how? Godly conduct. Uh, one commentator called this list, he gives five-fold godliness. Five-fold godliness in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
And the encouragement is in, is in the reminder of God's promise that when we repent of our sin and when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then we have the Spirit of God in us. That's not a metaphor, it's a promise. It's not a metaphor, it's a promise that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the living God is in you, dwells in you, and empowers us by His grace to work in us, to make us godly. Timothy, you have the Spirit of God in you. You can do this. No one's actions towards you uh, or, or disrespect towards you can change that. And then he goes on to affirm the godly conduct he has seen in Timothy. Paul knows who he sent. You should not send someone you don't know. He knows Timothy displays godliness in these areas and that godly conduct will do more to gain respect than anything else can. Godly conduct will increase authority more than demanding it. So let's run through these. Uh, in speech, over time, your words will reveal your character. Uh, the Bible says elsewhere that out from the heart, the mouth speaks. Especially as a leader in the church, as a pastor, elder, Timothy's words are to be seasoned with salt. In fact, the irony is, is that he should not be too quick to speak. Sometimes pastors, elders, can be too quick to speak. Think they know everything the moment they hear someone sharing. Be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. One of the things that all leaders in the church, I think especially pastors, have to defend against is the temptation of gossip. In our position, we know a lot of things about a lot of people that they've entrusted to us. Can you be trusted with what you know? Or are you prone to gossip? And we all know how to make gossip look more Christian, right? Yeah. As, as I um, think about um, speech and, and things I say, and as a pastor, what should I be saying right now? And I often can get anxious about that. What, what should I say? I need to say something now. What should I say? I found more often times than not, the Spirit is saying, um, it's actually more what you don't say. That the Spirit of God is working in you. Slow to speak, quick to listen. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Next, your conduct. Uh, this is a pretty general term, but, but it's important. It means your manner of life in all areas of life. Again, he's talking to Timothy as a pastor, but this extends to all believers. Be the same person in the pulpit as you are at the coffee table, as you are at the gym, in the neighborhood, at sports functions, in your living room with your family. Let your life speak over time with consistency. Timothy, be who you are everywhere. Don't be a chameleon where your actions depend upon who you're around. Like, be who you are everywhere. So often we try to determine who am I supposed to be here with these people for various reasons. Be consistent in your conduct. And then the next three are not necessarily as visible, but they're inward conduct that then have outward manifestations in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy, truly love God and love people, right? Not just for optics, not just because you should. Don't just do the things that you say that show you to be loving. Like, really work hard to love God. Your affections being raised for him, your, that, that's spilling over to your affections for others, let this love be an example to those around you. In faith, let your life show that you truly believe in the power of God to save. It's one thing to say it, but do you believe it? Does your life show it? 
Do you take faith-filled risks and seek wisdom from him in hard decisions, or do you always play it safe? And then impurity. Uh, This word in the Greek is related to sexual behavior and conduct. Pursue sexual purity, Timothy, in a world that is crazed by sex and sexuality. We know it was true in Ephesus. We know it is true today. See and uphold in either in practice or in conviction God's beautiful design for sex in the context of marriage. Timothy, set an example in your conduct. This is the five-fold godliness that Paul lays forward, a godly life. Timothy, this is what will give you authority. This is what will bring courage. Remembering that God has equipped you for this. The Spirit of God is in you. He's empowered you for this. And you have the authority that you need to carry out your calling in Ephesus. Commit to this, no matter how young or relatively young you might feel where you are. All right, we got to keep going quicker. Leads to number two. What's the second thing he affirms? Is godly teaching. Your life and your doctrine. Godly conduct and godly teaching. This one, again, especially pertinent to those in ministry. When giant despair is creeping in and you're wandering in the dark of your calling, what should we do? Verse 13 Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This is a great verse. Timothy, read the word. Preach the word. Teach the word. The encouragement we need as believers and that we should come to expect of preachers and teachers is not something new or something creative or something culturally relevant. We need that which is of old. The visible sight of the promise that God has revealed himself in his word. Thinking back on point one, if you were to ask the follow-up question, well, how do we know what godly speech is? Isn't that subjective? How do we know what godly conduct is or godly love or godly faith or godly purity? How do we even know what that is, let alone how to do it? The answer is in the promise that the Spirit of God has revealed himself through the Word of God. And the Word rightly read and understood and applied in our lives not only shows us how, but combined with the Spirit in us, gives us the power to actually do it. I wonder if Paul, while writing this letter, had Psalm 119 in his mind. Psalm 119, many of you know, is the longest chapter in the Bible. And isn't it telling that the longest chapter in the Bible is focused on the sufficient power of God's Word? Psalm 119, verse 9, this will be on the screen. How can a young man keep his way pure? I wonder if Paul was thinking about this. By guarding it according to your word. This is why, maybe the major reason why, the preaching of God's word is center focus in the regular gatherings of God's people. That the preaching of God's word is not contingent on time or generation or style. It has persisted from the Old Testament to the New Testament, to 2,000 years of church history, that when the people of God gather, the word of God is proclaimed. The church is not built up in godly conduct without godly teaching. You can't have godly conduct without godly teaching. 
It's certainly why we hold the conviction that expositing the text is the most important aspect of our preaching ministry here at Grace. Expository preaching might seem like a big term, but it's a simple definition. Expository preaching simply means that every single week, the main point of the text that is read is the main point of the sermon that is preached. Every single week, the main point of the text that is read is the main point of the sermon that is preached. Unfortunately, what has seemed to have increasingly been the case in churches is that a certain text is read, but then a different sermon is preached. When someone doesn't preach the text to proclaim God's word, but to use the text to proclaim their own word. David Helm says it much more creatively uh, like this, and this will be on the screen. He says, some preachers use the Bible the way a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than illumination. When we do that, we are teaching our Bible to lean on the Bible, to do something we want to do with it, rather than stand under the Bible and to proclaim the light that emanates from it. If I or anyone else stand up here and try to lean on the word to tell you what I think, rather than stand under the word to proclaim what God says, you know this, it's not worth showing up. Like, I always go, like, Bergen County, man, life is busy. A lot of things you could use for your Sunday mornings. And I'm not being humble here, I'm being honest. I'm not interesting enough of a speaker for it to be worth it for you to come and hear what I want to say. Not that charismatic that to be worth your time and whether here or elsewhere if God calls you to another church you should be disappointed anytime you go into a church gathering if a text is read but never explained and applied but if we are standing under God's word and teaching and explaining and proclaiming and applying the light of Christ that's not only worth your time hear me it's essential for you to survive to be in a church where the gatherings are not just worth your time, they're essential for you to survive, like water for your soul. Which leads to number three, and lastly, Paul affirms godly resolve. How do you encourage someone? Affirm their godly resolve. Paul sums this all, this mini encouragement wedged in the middle of the letter with this, and then we'll just put a punctuation mark on it and close. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Brothers and sisters, this passage is for those who are malcouraged. For those this morning or someday in the future, you find that you're caught up in despair. This passage does not just say, hey, don't be discouraged. Nor does it say, come on, do better. Take command, look tough, play the part. It's not what it says. It encourages you in the only way that encouragement works. By reminding you of God's promises over you. And affirming the godliness seen in you. Remember what Christ has done on your behalf on the cross. Preach it to yourself daily that he has healed the rupture of sin by dying for you. Remember how the Father raised him from the dead, defeating death and offering new life for those who put 
their faith in Him. And then remember daily who you are in Christ. Be who you are in Christ. And keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. J.I. Packer puts this more concisely and memorably. He says, don't let go and let God, but trust God and get going. Trust God and get going. This is godly resolve. This is the perseverance that God empowered Christian to get to the celestial city in the pilgrim's progress. This is the resolve that God provides you by his grace, believer, to get to the finish line. Let's get there together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your whole word, but especially a word that speaks to the discouraged. I pray that we would soak this in this morning for those of us who need to apply that right now and that the rest of us would recall it quickly when we feel discouragement in the future. Father, we know that the greatest need of people today is to know more of you. It's the most practical thing in our lives is to know you more. Father, and that we know about you impacts how we live, that our conduct and our doctrine go hand in hand. Lord, grow us in our knowledge of you. Allow us to persist in this by your grace that holds us close. Father, remind us of the resolve that you've already put in us and that you will be alongside us, leading us to finish well. Father, I pray the Grace Church would be a couraged church and that you would use us however you see fit. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.